This is the Customer Equity Accelerator. If you are a marketing executive who wants to deliver bottom line impact by identifying and connecting with revenue generating customers, then this is the show for you. I'm your host, Allison Hartsoe, CEO of Ambition Data. Each week, I bring you the leaders behind the customer-centric revolution who share their expert advice. Are you ready to accelerate? Then let's go. Welcome, everyone. Today's show is about how a heritage brand became and maintained a 25-year leadership position. And to help me discuss this topic is Sumantro Das. Sumo is the Senior Director of Product and Growth Brands, as well as General Manager at 1-800-Flowers. He's also the Chair of the Mobile Roundtable Product Consortium. Sumo, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me today, Allison. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and how you ended up at 1-800-Flowers? Sure. I have a background in digital product. I've been in, at 1-800-Flowers for seven years. I started originally a mobile product and that evolved into growing the mobile customer experience, deepening it over a period of time. And eventually that led to me getting additional responsibilities, including running brands as incubated startups within 1-800-Flowers. I love what you said about running brands as incubated startups. I don't think businesses commonly think about brands that way. Is that an area that is kind of unique to 1-800-Flowers in your experience? It's a condition evolving landscape within 1-800-Flowers. Uh, we're looking to provide solves for consumer needs, not necessarily push brands in order to provide solves for the gifting requirements and needs. Oh, fantastic. I love to hear that we're not there to push product. We're there to really think about the customer's needs. So now I have to ask you, being a 25-year digital leader is almost an oxymoron in our space. Most of the brands that I remember starting with in my career, MySpace and even Yahoo, which is such an icon have really turned over. But 1-800-Flowers is not in that category. So outside of Amazon and Walmart, very few heritage brands have been able to move really aggressively into the digital space and then really stay there. So my first question really has to be, what makes 1-800-Flowers not just a survivor, but a digital leader in the space? I think the way we think about providing the consumer experience and being a customer-centric first is a driving element that permeates throughout our entire organization. It starts with innovation and not being overly attached to any one idea, product, or concept, but having a drive to be customer-oriented. In our case, providing solve for a customer's gifting use case and really maintaining that across a multitude of media, whether it's initially telephonic, whether it was desktop, whether it was mobile, and now moving into other platforms, just conversational, and we don't know what's next. So understanding how we're continuously solving for the consumer needs and being platform and technology agnostic has driven that outcome for us. You mentioned at the beginning of the show that you were part of the mobile consortium. Am I right in saying that, in thinking that when Mary Meeker was rolling out the state of the internet and we were all starting to see that everybody was coming in on their mobile devices more than desktop and the whole paradigm changed, was that where you started to get some early wins for 1-800-Flowers? We believe in making multiple bets and seeing what, where the prevailing wins take us. It just so happens that we are first in mobile. Among the early folks in mobile, we have had a number of iterations of a mobile experience. It's an investment we took very seriously going back over 10 years. So really, the lead-up time between investment and reaping the benefits of it is not just one or two years, more likely close to a decade. And seeing that evolve over a landscape and the environmental changes, whether it's with the Googles and the Bings of the world that are enforcing stricter standards on what qualifies as a quality mobile experience, 
variant. That has played into advantage of the early movers who've had lessons over the years. And we're fortunate that we've been able to garner those lessons and maintain continuity while providing a shopping experience that we're very pleased with. So I think it's very interesting what you said about having the investment take a lot of time to reap the benefit. I don't think a lot of companies think that way and think long term. It almost sounds like there's maybe like a framework or something that you're working through when you go to make a bet on a technology or make a bet on a particular strategy. Am I right to assume that there's something in there? Yeah, it really takes an eye to understand what the potential of a technology is. Take, for example, augmented reality. It's not very clear to many folks where augmented reality was headed until someone opened up, for instance, the Wayfair app one day and then saw that they could see what a piece of furniture, such as a mirror, would look like in the living room. And all of a sudden, once someone saw that use case in the product workshop over at Wayfair and then shipped that product out, by then it had gone through so much rigor in QA and planning that when by the time a customer placed that on their living room wall in the app and then made a purchase, it just became so obvious. So the conception and the inception of such concepts is not so straightforward in the beginning, but cutting through the noise and finding the signal and identifying what the use cases are takes a lot of refinement, takes high velocity of cycles, and they will inevitably be some shortcomings, which is part of the game, and accepting those shortcomings is part of making multiple bets. And ultimately, when there are wins, they tend to prevail, they tend to get more attention, but they should they don't and they should not mask the number of cycles and the, the quote-unquote hard lessons that everybody had to undertake. So that's a really good point about, and it almost sounds like agile in a way, that you're going through a number of cycles. So you have a sample technology, and so this is kind of the, let's call it the innovative thinking that is residual in perhaps the DNA of 1-800-Flowers, where you've got this sense of there's an opportunity in a particular area with a new technology, let's say augmented reality. And the process of finding what the use case is, is not just starting with one answer and then throwing it away, but watching how that answer evolves over time. So I would imagine that there's probably a certain investment that gets earmarked for any win that you want to go after. And once that investment starts to reach a certain threshold, do you have a point where you decide either we're going to double down on this or we're going to can it because it's hitting some threshold, it's hitting a certain use case well or it's not? Yeah, and I can't speak for other folks across the industry, but any data-driven organization is always looking at performance and the take rate, the engagement rate, and ultimately what drives every organization, which is revenue. And if there are signals that point to incremental adoption across such KPIs, then it is incumbent upon the product manager, product director, head of product, whoever is running the show, to double down on the trends and say, you know, we've seen incremental engagement over a set period of time, quarter over quarter, year on year, whatever the time period is, and upon that become imperative to take action. The edge of the product manager, and when I say product manager, it's level agnostic. You can be head of product, you can be an entry-level product analyst, but the agile product manager is going to need to see what the opportunities are and marry them with the business's internal requirements and needs, going down from the customer, going down to each organization's own technological nuances, and ultimately using that to propel an outcome that is market-ready, outcome-ready, and result-oriented. It reminds me a bit of a startup process 
process in that if you time it too early, you might be holding on for a while to get to that incremental engagement that you mentioned or reach the certain KPIs. Like, How do you control how early, how late, how do you decide, especially in maintaining digital leadership? Like you said, you make all these bets. Some of them are going to bear fruit. Some of them aren't. Yeah, the way I sort of look at it, that uh, my boss is what I call like the four pillars of e-commerce. It's the discoverability, the engagement, speed to outcome, or in the case of e-commerce, speed to transaction. And then the relationship that a brand builds with the user, once that user then becomes a customer. Those four pillars drive, in my eyes, the growth of an overall business. And that's sort of evolved as I've transitioned from being more product-oriented to being more of a general manager with PNL responsibilities. So would you say that you're using those pillars to align the company and get everybody kind of rowing in the same direction now that you have the GM perspective? I'd say those pillars were already in motion. This is just my own synthesis of what I what was already happening. So versus imparting my own mechanism or my own way of getting things done, what I thought worked well was just understanding how I could compartmentalize what was already going on and then contribute towards KPIs in each metric or in each endeavor, which is going to propel further each step of the consumer shopping journey. So do you think about the KPIs within each pillar or is it any particular use case has its own KPI? They have their own KPIs. For discoverability, also, you'd always want to have new users coming onto your experience. For engagement, you want to make sure that the shopper is, is browsing through your site, there's minimal drop-off, and there's high pass-through rate at each step of the shopping experience, a checkout funnel. Lead to outcome, whether it's a cost, whether it's a lead, or whether it is an order or a conversion, that speaks for itself. And then, what is the lifetime value of that user once you acquire them as a brand? And, they, and all the, the metrics for each of these steps will differ by brand, no doubt. But understanding what the baseline is and then growing that is one part which is important. But then the other part of it is where the partners internally and externally who are going to enable you drive those outcomes. I love what you're saying here, obviously about customer lifetime value, because I always feel like that's the tip of the spear. But I also like how you're bringing in the element of fresh blood, our new users coming in. When new users come in, are you kind of looking at these four pillars in a different light where discovery, engagement, speed to outcome and their customer lifetime value might be separated from people who are existing users coming through and buying something else. Sure. And that is where it begins to bifurcate. Uh, that is more of a, an acquisition strategy. For a retention strategy, one might want to focus more on re-engagement and what are the times that are appropriate to be engaging with your customers and how to make them an interactive part of your brand. It doesn't really make sense. And I like to transpose the best of brick and mortar experiences onto digital. If I walk into a, walk into a high-end boutique store, I am less likely to respond to an associate on the floor who just keeps asking me, welcome back, and would you like to buy a watch which is on sale? And I just bought a watch. I don't want to buy another watch. I'm not really that. But if I get send that same genre of an email five times, that's just asking your, your user to unsubscribe. And that's just my equivalent of just walking out the store. And be mindful of those sort of interactions and how they can have profound psychological impact in the relationship between a customer and a brand is paramount across all industries. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's where that contextual knowledge becomes so important. I always feel like on the digital space, we're so boneheaded oftentimes. And buy, buy, buy. Like, I don't know how many times I've bought something and then I get remarketed to like crazy. And I'm just like, stop. Even brands that I expected would have it dialed in. And just specifically, I bought a Peloton recently after much discussion and much analysis, finally pulled the trigger by this expensive bike. And they keep sending me emails 
emails and ads. I'm like, oh, stop. I've already bought. Leave me alone. It's not a great post user experience, but it's hard to see that in the digital space. Perhaps we are less forgiving in the digital space than we are if you were to walk into a physical store. What do you think? <laughs> I think we'd be kidding ourselves if we didn't say or admit that we all had that experience. It's something which honestly speaks more about the evolution of digital marketing. We wouldn't talk to a human being like a broken record. So why should we accept that digitally just because we are not being that customer face-to-face? So it's again incumbent upon every brand, every merchant to be communicating, engaging meaningfully at each touch point, not just looking at users as an audience, but looking at users as a single individual and recognizing that an individual has a propensity to engage in a certain way and providing a curated experience for that specific individual. The more one is able to learn about them and learn about what the user wants and then provide a meaningful shopping experience, not one which is not going to be well-received, not one which is erosive, and certainly not one which is annoying for the user because at that point, a customer is just going to turn away and go somewhere. And there's challenges with that because the more you understand about people, the narrower sometimes the choices get. And we've all had that experience on our news feeds where you start to feel like you're in a damn bubble. And then I don't know about you, but I actually purposely subscribe to things that are outside my normal point of view just to get more diversity in there. So as we try to understand our audience and as we change the language to talk about them more as individuals, are we nudging them too far? How do you manage that? I want to give them something of value, but I don't want to go too far. That's a conundrum which every retailer is facing. And when is that line clear between not going too far and being within a respectable bound? I continue to hear product managers in the industry across the mobile roundtable say that they've seen a retargeting ad about a topic that they've never searched on. It never ended words. So how else, how could that have happened? And then various theories get spewed and none are confirmed. So we are as human beings beginning to engage in digital mediums. We are just a reflection of where we've come from, where we, our behaviors are a function of our existing environment. It is a function of a behavior. There's a formula which I learned from George Labovitz. Behavior is a function of the individual environment. The individual is one that you cannot change, but the environment, that the environment is continuously evolving. As the environment continues to evolve, as technologies become more normalized, then the behavior will gradually be reflective of that shift in environment. And then the individual, which remains constant, will be more likely to engage in more personalized shopping experiences online. Sometimes, as just as a means of recourse, we like to go to a boutique experience. We like to go to a mom-and-pop shop. We like to go to a local store where cashier does know our name, where the shop associate knows what we have as taste preferences during Christmas when we go Christmas shopping. Or if we go to a deli, the person behind the counter knows what our tastes are. Those are experiences that we need to be understanding a bit better and how to reproduce them in a way which the shopper wants that experience, not pushing that onto the customer as they walk in the door. That's the exact opposite of what the consumer wants, but that is what appears to be more of what most online retailers, brands are doing today. And, and you know, you've hit on so many rich concepts there. I picked up three that are just core to the idea. One is that customer centricity is really about taking that kind of personal 1950s, I'm walking into my local store and everybody knows my name, and operating it at scale. And then two is the language that you're using. You're talking about them. I don't know if you remember this, but in the early days of the internet, we talked about people as eyeballs and wanting to get more eyeballs on your site. And then we started talking about traffic and then we started talking about visitors. Now we're using 
using the language of customer a lot more and audience and making it more humanizing even down to the individual level. I have to ask, how do you refer to people inside 1-800-Flowers? Everyone's a customer. Uh, we pride ourselves on being customer-oriented. Yeah, perfect. So everybody is. And so the third part of what I was picking up on what you were saying is that behavior is a function of the individual environment. And that reminds me a lot of cultural change in the like photography and everything that we saw when cameras first came out and people were like, oh, don't take my picture. It's very much that way now. We're not sure what that means for us. And as our lives become a little bit more enabled or things become a little smoother, we might relax a little bit on the fact that we're being retargeted an ad. Right now, we're being retargeted things we didn't ask for, we don't care about. But if we're being retargeted on something that actually is valuable, then maybe it's a little more accepting or it's okay. But along those lines, so we're talking about how digital leadership was maintained at 1-800-Flowers. And so much of that gets into the four pillars of e-commerce that you hit on, the KPIs behind that, the way that drives the organization, not just by product, but by a customer-centric point of view and thinking about the gifting experience. Can you give us some examples of how that gifting experience has kind of taken root and ways that you use those pillars or ways that you thought about things differently? Yeah, one example was when we wanted to shift towards a new mobile paradigm. One of the questions we asked ourselves was, how do we provide our shoppers with seamless experience and one that is delightful to engage with? And around four years ago, there was a there was release from Apple of a product which became widely popular and is effectively ubiquitous for payments today, Apple Pay. And one of the initiatives we had was to build that and incorporate that to our experience. We were launch partners with them and with experience which led to a positive sum game for all, all players involved, whether it was certainly Apple pushing their own product, our consumers for having an experience which was delectable. What a great word. And right, and us as a merchant who are providing means for most seamless transaction experience. And there are a lot of nuances and wires in the background which had to be connected. We're a gifting experience to quite transaction, but everybody has their own nuances. And it's up to the product manager at that time. I was the product manager on the release and seeing how that experience was conceived and then put into market time for a launch campaign helps us understand that, that when we do see an opportunity, that's going to make a difference. We need to test it out. Initially, it was just it was a test and saw encouraging results. And now everyone in the market has that way. And everyone, to the extent that you can now have Apple Pay on payment processors, which provided supported and provided by competing payment methods, which have their own payment gateway. So Apple has maintained its authority on as a leading payment provider on iOS through through effectively not just being first in market, but really providing clean user experience, which is safe, secure, and provides comfort for its. It is a good system, but what I'm also hearing underneath here is when you talk about lots of wires to connect, this is where most organizations fall apart. There's this, what would you call it, almost like a wall between the technical IT group and the group that's more product, customer, marketing facing, let's call it. How did you get the two pieces to work in such a way that you were able to connect all those wires and put it together and get everybody moving in the same direction? Action so that you could be innovative. Yeah, I think no one is born as a product manager, but we all have shaping and foundational experiences which make us problem solvers across various walks of life. And translating that into an outcome-oriented 
initiative within one's organization, irrespective of what industry we're in. You can, one can be aeronautical engineering, one can be in a restaurant services manager, and one could be in online retail and e-commerce. Every environment has constraints. Every organization has goals. And aligning the two is first step. Understanding what moves the needle between moving supply and matching that to demand, that is, that's key. Once those high-level KPIs are understood and the cadence of which they shift is understood, then there's an opportunity in understanding where are the levers pulled. Now we start to get into the system that are powering various KPIs. And some of them are legacies in most organizations, which is and the lack of knowledge about the systems can be devastating. It can be the difference between having an awesome lead with an, with an innovative partner and not being able to integrate them into a system. And that is the step which folks tend to grapple the most with. As uh, solution providers and partners become more experienced in working through such apps, they are providing a much more widespread opportunity to onboard other retailers and other merchants or have you. And through sheer experience, they're able to part themselves as a better, as a solve for a broader use case. But in order to be first to the game, in order to be innovative, one has to build that muscle memory early on and maintain that as an active muscle. And it's not something which should ever go dormant. As long as we are continuing to build ourselves into a way that we are ready to onboard and evangelize and internalize new products, concepts, and new ways of doing business, that is going to lead to continuously evolving landscape internally. And that ultimately leads to a business which is continuously moving and shifting and evolving. Does that mean, Sumo, that if an organization has poorly formed goals or goals that don't lead to very clear KPIs, that a person who's trying to solve those problems and create something new within the organization might have a lot of difficulty? Yeah, one can't improve what one can't measure. So instrumentation is key and confidence in that instrumentation is key as well. No and then improve and further that baseline. So the KPI is key. We get that baked in. But then there's the softer skill aspect that you talked about as translating into other walks of life. How have you been able to kind of reach to other parts of the organization and solve problems? Are there specific techniques that you use to get everybody on board as you're in the product manager role, as you're trying to get something new stood up? Everybody needs to be involved. People want to be involved in something which is cool, which is novel, which sounds like a different way of getting this done. Who wouldn't want to be involved in moving an organization forward as the organization evolves? We all want to be a part of that mission and make the first step in getting partners and getting folks on board to make them feel like they're really part of that mission. Make it very clear what the objective is and explain to them this is the specialty that's required to deliver against that. And that clearly defines someone's role. Just personally, in my experience, I found that to be very helpful because then they tend to share the vision. They tend to share. And it doesn't have to be your vision, but if it is one's own vision, it's best to always speak in the collective we because we are all in this in one as one team. I guess this can also sort of tie into some leadership principles, but leading by example and not by direction is one which can be an infectious MO, and that can lead to folks wanting to willfully being part of the endeavor, whether it's a new product release, whether it is a new onboarding new partner, and then there's technological integration required, whatever it is, making people, people want to feel part of that mission. And then once they're part of that mission, they know what their role is, they will lead to it that they're able to deliver. And it always helps to have top-down support from the senior leadership team 
any organization will always will always benefit from that. But if that is promulgated to the leadership and what the benefits are, then that adds further momentum to the cause. Does the size of the team matter? It's uh, it's size agnostic. I find that any any movement on any project requires collaboration, and it sounds obvious, but when teams sort of get larger, then the matrix environment tends to sort of not be as conducive, and there's less inertia for whatever reason because the vision doesn't permeate through and through. Once that vision permeates through and through, then that becomes almost infectious. And do you need to allow maybe a certain amount of time that's not necessarily built into, like, let's say that you want to get a new system stood up or a new functionality running and you want to hit a certain date, but do you have to back in a certain amount of time for people to understand and make the vision theirs? Yeah, and you've actually touched upon a key point here. Everybody has their own responsibilities and timelines and deadlines ahead. Being mindful of that is key. That can be, depending on what function one's in, it can be weeks. It's usually in product technology, it's months, three to six months. And some organizations over a year, depending on the maturity of the, and the richness of the product roadmap and how the prioritization takes place. So being mindful of those needs and those requirements for other teams is paramount. Otherwise, folks are going to be less willing to collaborate. But that sounds like a little area of tension. Like you need to get them on board. But at the same time, you need to get your results out. This sounds like an opportunity to bring in a box of donuts or something and make friends so that you can get your timelines uh, synced and get people excited. Maybe it's that excitement that becomes the grease in the wheels. Everybody wants a box of donuts and coffee. I would always be happy whenever someone brought that in. But yeah, it goes down to building sound, deep relations with not just your own team, but across the, across departments. In an organization, whether it's five people big or whether it's 500 or 5,000 or more, knowing who the key stakeholders are and building those relationships is going to be the vehicle for driving success. And, you know, what's interesting, too, there is when you're going across departments, the key stakeholder is not always the boss. I think sometimes it's the influencer that's on the team that when you get them on board, everything else starts to kind of move a little bit more easily. Would you agree? Absolutely. And it's a team effort. Going to the bosses is an approach. It works for some people. It doesn't work for others, but knowing who is going to help you get there and making that individual, that team be a part of the endeavor, again, that's key because people want to be a part of mission and vision. If you are saying that this is going to be a change for the better for your organization. Yeah, you just can't underestimate that human element. I heard once it was 5% of any company are the people who are like the deep influencers, the movers and shakers of the company. And when you get that group on board and you get them bought into your vision, it's like the gates open and everything else becomes so much easier. But they're not easy to identify. They're kind of like this. If you were to map a social network inside an organization, they would be the hubs. That's funny because that comes with a function of spending time within an organization. But that goes counter to folks today who tend to have multiple careers, multiple jobs within careers. There's a bit of a catch-22. Folks want to be movers and shakers. But on the other hand, people are getting jobs, various companies, I think, at increasingly shorter bursts. So yes, you're right. But it does take time to garner those relationships. Yes, that itself is an interesting challenge. Can you talk a little bit about new and emerging products, things that you guys are leaning into to help keep that leadership advantage? Sure. So a few years ago, we came across this product concept called the Progressive Web App. We worked intimately with Progressive Web App team for Google. And in a sense, it's a way of providing a web browser the ability to have an app-like experience, which we delivered after uh, multiple cycles, a lot of QA, a lot of planning, a lot of design work. We basically redid the way we provide our mobile experience. And ultimately, it was an experience which was delightful to browse on. It was quick to make a purchase, got out a number of steps, and is now become as contributed certainly towards the standard of what a progressive web app is. 
and I'll see a lot of retailers and a lot of web experiences, platform providers talking about progress web apps ready outside, out of the box. And we're pleased and we're, we're humbled to see that that's how the market is going because we put a lot of effort into that endeavor. It was a bet that we took early again, and it was one that, that paid off and got us featured at Google I.O. Um, last year. Nice. That's great. And I also sense that as you're making these decisions about where to put your bets, that it's not just, oh, this is a cool technology. Would I be right in thinking that there's some customer-centric or maybe some customer lifetime value analysis happening underneath where you're saying not only would it help everyone to improve the speed and the experience, but we really want to give our good customers great service. We want them to come back and enjoy coming back. Is that also factored in? Yeah, it is factored in. And I think every retailer factors that in. They want to have an experience which is not erosive. They want to have an experience which is pleasant, which is aesthetically pleasing to land on, to browse, to swipe images, to select sizes. So all these attributes are part of deepening shopping experience. And all retailers trying to find ways that are keeping customers meaningfully engaged uh, on the experience. But also retailers are limited in budget. So how do you decide which to do first, second, third? It depends on where one feels the biggest opportunity is. There's always the proverbial low-hanging fruit, but even low-hanging fruit has to be plucked, right? So if you're going to go out, go to the effort of plucking, one has to know which, you know, what's it's not just and it's not just a low-hanging fruit. It's taking that metaphor a step further. You know, what which fruit is most delicious? And maybe the low-hanging, lowest-hanging, the, the seemingly lowest-hanging fruit may not be the most delicious. May not be the one that we want to go after. But going back to what you were saying, it really comes down to understanding what the real opportunities are for your organization, for your team, for your product, whether it's a web experience, whether it's app experience, desktop, mobile, telephonic, it doesn't really matter. Where's the opportunity? Is it to improve pass-through rate, to improve checkout? Is it to improve both the discoverability and get more people to understand what your brand does, who you are, what is your identity, and what are you solving for that they can come to you as a destination? Those are questions that each brand will have to answer on their own, but those are questions which help to answer things. And it sounds like, and just hearing the KPIs you're coming back to, it sounds like every time you decide to pluck that low-hanging fruit, you're always tracing it back to how do we know it's successful? It's not like we think this would be nice to have and we think it'll have an effect. You're looking for a specific quantified impact. Is that right? Yeah, and it goes back to having a student pulse with analytics and not just having analytics, but knowing what the numbers and for in the context of when they're being read with relation to time, with relation to environment, or with relation to environmental impacts. Yes, in many e-commerce companies, if it's a product that's based on being a being disposable income, then for whatever reason there were to be an environmental impact that would impact a certain populace's finances, then those companies would be the first to be impacted, among the first to be impacted. And for companies and brands which are more closely aligned with being a utility-based outcome, they're less likely to feel the pinch. So it really matters in understanding what the context of one's own usage is and use cases are. And that ultimately even leads to product innovation, not just digital side, but also on the physical service and good that an organization is providing. And companies that are evolving in that space tend to thrive very much as well. So one of the things that, Sumer, you've been hitting on through the entire conversation here that I think is really salient is that 1-800-Flowers essentially operates just like a startup with a lot of focus, a lot of execution, a lot of the really good features that we see in successful 
successful startups. But yet as a as a heritage brand, how did that happen? <laughs> how did you take a whole bunch of people who were maybe used to doing things in a very old fashioned way? And how did this become part of the DNA of the company? It really comes down to us being present when a user is looking for a gifting outcome. And we try to be present when uh, the user is looking for a solve for whether it's a birthday gift or whether it's expressing condolences, doing sympathy, or uh, doing peak years like Valentine's or Mother's Day. It's important to be visible, important to be relevant. It's important to be a good fit for that user. And there are various ways through between messaging and product that we've talked about, the digital experience as well as the physical hard good product. We have a, have a product of which we're very proud of and continues to think of ways that physical goods are relevant. The actual gifts that are being developed are relevant to the customers who are then entrusting us to deliver that to the recipient. Mm-hmm. Being present, entrusting, allowing your customers to entrust a certain amount of, well, trust and comfort to you when they need a gift, whether it's sympathy or Mother's Day. It sounds like you're really thinking about them all the time. We are. And understanding that the various use cases and that drives our innovation not just our organization but other organizations and having a strong technology team one thing we have a technology team internally we're very very proud of we're very pleased with that enable us to drive these number of outcomes uh, from ideation to delivery so between the partnerships we have internally across our departments and that's it really does become a true team effort so I'm going to say that if I were convinced and let's say I was Sears maybe 20 years ago <laughs> let's roll back the clock a little bit and I said okay what should I be doing first second third based on what you just said, I should understand the use cases that are key to my business. I should make sure that I have a strong technology team that works smoothly from ideation to delivery. And I should make sure that I have maybe cross-pollination amongst the departments. How would you say it? I would say that whoever is responsible for demand generation will have the greatest visibility and understanding what the consumer is looking for. And translating that into a series of requirements that are, that are tangible for for the various teams into some sort of project plan, which then will usually in some sort will go through a right-sizing or a prioritization, which every organization needs to have. And some organizations move on this quicker than others. But once that process is in place and goes through the mechanism, hopefully quicker and sooner rather than later, that then involves teams which will be delivering against that, whether you need to deploy code or you need to engage with a vendor, you need to engage with another party, sometimes even shared services like legal. It's important to make sure that in an era where companies are trying to move fast, companies are trying to get it be first in market, that we do our due diligence from a privacy, from a security, and from a legal standpoint. Those customers come to us premise that we're providing them the right good and service in a manner which is delectable to shop, as I mentioned earlier. It's all safe, secure, and that we are being good stewards and stewardesses of the consumer's overall shopping experience. I love it. And that's exactly the right mentality is it's not about how can I give you more product, but am I being a good steward of the experience that you're seeking? And as is my use case helping you to find the right gifting solution? So I love how you've put that, Sumo. If people want to reach you, how can they get in touch? Sure. I do have a Twitter account. It's my full name, Shimantra Das, uh, at Das. I do have an Instagram, which I'm very active on, at Modern Cricketer. But cricket is a sport that I play. So if you're either on Twitter or Instagram, you're welcome to reach out to me on that, and I will definitely engage back. 
Very nice. I love that. As always, links to everything we discussed are at ambitiondata.com slash podcast. Sumo, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure to hear how an organization can really modernize inside a heritage brand through the focus and execution and the, the discipline that you bring, but also the passion that you bring to the organization. Well, the pleasure has been mine. And uh, thank you, Austin. We appreciate it. Remember, when you use your data effectively, you can build customer equity. It is not magic, just a very specific journey that you can follow to get results. Thank you for joining today's show. This is your host, Allison Hartzell, and I have two gifts for you. First, I've written a guide for the customer-centric CMO, which contains some of the best ideas from this podcast, and you can receive it right now. Simply text Ambition Data, one word, to 31996. And after you get that white paper, you'll have the option for the second gift, which is to receive the signal. Once a month, I put together a list of three to five things I've seen that represent customer equity signal, not noise. And believe me, there's a lot of noise out there. Things I include could be smart tools I've run across, articles I've shared, cool statistics, or people and companies I think are making amazing progress as they build customer equity. I hope you enjoy the CMO guide and the signal. See you next week on the Customer Equity Accelerator.